Cut them back on. Yeah, yeah, there it is. So Noah's going to preach for us. Noah is one of our Bonhoeffer House residents, which if you want to know what that means, we train church planters and pastors and church leaders here um, with the assistance of the Bonhoeffer House, Jesse Fury, our, the distinguished director, Jesse Fury. Mm. Um, <laughs> Longtime friend. Anyway, we, we do that. Guy. Noah is one of our guys. He's church staff as well. And uh, glad to have you. Excited to hear the word this morning. So, Boom. Brett cuts himself. That's the rule. Only he cuts himself. You don't tell me what to do. That's right. <laughs> that works. I loved, literally, Jesse came up right before and was like, who's on announcements? Brenda. All right. Who's after that? Brett. He's like, oh. All right. So we're going to have a pretty exciting, high-energy Lots of communication going on. It's like, yeah, this is this is stellar. That was a great introduction. Thank you, Brett. Also, didn't realize I was like, I could, Brett could record an audiobook, and I'd be fine with that. I was like, that was very nice. Yeah, way to go. So, yeah, I'm Noah. It's nice to meet you guys, live streamers. Good to have you guys here. I've been working at the church for three-ish years. Jesse convinced me to join the Bonhoeffer House that long ago. And then we realized we had some gaps we needed to fill in the church, so I just kind of stepped in there, and here we are. And one thing led to another, and who knows what I do? I don't, but we get some stuff done, and it's great. You can ask anybody who came to the workday yesterday. We just got an incredible amount of stuff done. It was awesome. I don't see the Aleens in here, but Mike Aleen, just thumbs up to him. Just incredible. There he is. Just what a stud. It's wonderful work. Anyways... I'm going to start going now. We're in 1 Peter, and, and I was reading this text, and I just want to draw attention. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. Just right off the bat, I just want you to look at the first sentence. I'm going to tell you everything that came to mind when I read this first sentence. It starts, the end of all things is at hand. I'm just going to stop there already. That's just the first part. I just wanted us to, right? I read it, and immediately in my mind came Apocalypse Now, all of these other movies where I'm just like, oh, the end's here. There's, there's signs on the road that you'll drive by where you're like, well, I guess the end's here, right? There's this like apocalyptic, strange, like when you hear that word, the end of all things, it's hard not to get these old timey, uh, I think of growing up in Southwest Virginia where I've heard even preaching like this before where somebody's like, the end's here, what do we do? I'm like, I don't know. You haven't told me anything to do yet. So I'm not sure what we're doing. And you get this like crazy, intense imagery, you know, people being beamed up left and right. Like, I'm just like, wow, I read Left Behind, right? I know what's going on. So like, you, get, you get these ideas when somebody drops that idea of the end of all things is at hand. It's, it's a little bit terrifying. It's a little bit like, well, what are you trying to do here, man? Are you trying to scare me? Are you trying to, but, but what, I, what I think is that, is that what Peter's trying to do is he's trying to encourage people in a time where, where we can see the end coming, where the end of the ages is coming to an end, he wants to encourage them. So when we're going through the text today, I want us to think about Peter's intent to encourage, not an intent to scare, not an intent to say, well, the end is here, so you better like say your prayer, do the right thing, and, and there you go. But he's encouraging them as they're sojourners and strangers and exiles in a strange land. He wants to encourage them. So that, that's Peter's goal well, when I read this, I had initially thought about um, all of those movies in particular. But aside from the apocalyptic movies, I thought of my favorite TV show, which is Parks and Recreation. If there's any Parks and Recreation fans, that's wonderful. Right? So there's one episode in particular where um, there's these, this group, 
who worships this this thing called Zorp. It's like a lizard with a volcano mouth. It's incredible. You should watch the show. It'll describe it. And so they every year they come to the park and they reserve a space and they say, all right, the end is here. I think it's going to happen on this day. And then like that slot was taken. So they're like, oh, actually, it's going to happen. And so they, they can sit in the park and play their flutes. And so what they do is they every year they go and they write checks that they have to cash, but then they write them and hand them to them like, yeah, cash that tomorrow. And there's this inside joke for them of like, well, everything's going to be gone, so you can't cash that check. And it's this just hilarious moment of, you know, very breaking the fourth wall, looking at the camera like, these guys are idiots. Right? You're writing checks that you're going to have to cash that tomorrow. Stop putting zeros on it. And it's, it's a problem. And so they, they do that every year, but they're sitting around spending all of their money on just little handmade flutes because they want to play flutes around a circle and wait for you know a meteor or something to strike the earth and destroy everything. But there's another character. I wanted to make sure that that, that part's explained because that's a ridiculous part of the episode. Right? They're spending all of the money that they have saying, what does it matter? I'm just going to play a flute in the park and wait for everything to blow up. What a life, right? But then there's another side where there's this character named Andy, and he is not the brightest at times. He's my favorite character, though. He's hilarious. And so he's got this bucket list where he and his wife are like, let's, let's do this. And some of the things on the list are in this order. This is how he says them. Um, he wants to make the most awesome grilled cheese in the universe. That's, that's pretty solid. I can understand where he's going with that. The next is he wants to teach his son to throw the perfect spiral. The third, have a son in that order. And then the, the last one is to go see the Grand Canyon. So he has this grandiose idea, go to the Grand Canyon. So he and his wife go, long story short, so literally it's like a 10 second clip. They steal her dad's car and they drive it. They live in Indiana. They drive it all the way across to the Grand Canyon. It's this wonderful emotional montage of them traveling together. Uh, they get there and they're staring out over the edge of the Grand Canyon. And he's like, oh, wow, this is so beautiful. This is incredible. Babe, where's... Where's all the president's faces? It's, it's, it's an immediate moment of like, oh, man, you lovely idiot. That was, that's so dumb, right? And it's a, it's a hysterical image of like, you got this bucket list and, and this, it's, you know, make awesome grilled cheese. And I immediately start thinking of, of we, we have bucket lists. We have these kind of um, things that you want to put on a list that just in case time's short, you know, the pressure's on, you get a time constraint, suddenly a lot of things become more important, like making grilled cheeses for Andy from Parks and Rec. But, but aside from that, like for us, when, when the pressure's on, when we, whenever you get a time constraint, even if it's on vacation, you're down to the last two days, you're like, oh, we need to fit in everything. I need to, I need to go and I need to get this. I need to, to purchase that. I need to experience this. What if I don't have enough fun? Oh man, if I don't have enough fun and then I don't post it on social media, how are people going to know that I rested on this vacation if it's not on social media, you know, right? When you put time constraints on something, there tends to be a pressure that, that brings to the surface the things that you value. So what I think is, is that for us, we experience that when, when we're given constraints. If we have the same reaction that, that Peter gives, he says, all right, the end's at hand. For us in our day, we, we think the end is at hand. So what, what do I do well, I'm going to go do whatever I want to do. That's the point of your bucket list. Your bucket list is never all of the things my friends want to do. It's all the things that I want to do. But when you start putting constraints on, on life, time constraints in particular, when time is short, your values come to the surface. 
I think there's a tension that Peter sees in this text and in their first century culture where when, when time is short, you're going to start seeing their values come to the surface. So he's bringing this up to them to say, hey, the end's at hand. Maybe not this kind of apocalyptic insanity that we would see in a movie, but more of the encouragement of, hey, we're, we're in these, what the Bible calls the last days. And these last days, it could be at any time, right? It, at any time, at any moment. I actually distinctly remember sitting on Sam Miller's back porch and talking with them and Brett, who literally pointed out to the clouds and says, just imagine right now, what would happen? I was like, I don't know. I'm not ready for that. That's really intense. It could happen right now. Like what? And then all of these anxieties of, of oh, well, I haven't done this and I haven't done this. And, and maybe I'm not fun enough. And who have I experienced enough life with? And all of these different you know, values start coming up. And I was like, man, these aren't the things that I should be thinking about right now. I should be thinking about the people I'm with or the reality of, what, of what's to come. So Peter sees attention. There's, there's this world that they're living in where when their values come to the surface, it's the, the answer to their question of, of what do you do when, when things are coming to an end? What would you do? I want us to think about that. What would you do when things are coming to an end? I think the answer of our world at large is I would do what I want to do. I would have as much fun as possible. I would act on every impulse that I have. I would, I would go get everything that I can to make sure that I can maximize my happiness. I could go buy things. Um, a wise man once said, uh, money doesn't buy happiness, but buying things helps. And like, there's, there's a reality. We, we go spend all of our money. We'd write blank checks like these random guys from Parks and Recreation, right? So I think that's the answer of the age. But I think Peter has something else in mind. He wants to, to draw to their, to their minds this, this tension that they're going to have with their culture at large. And he's going to paint a picture for them of, of what, what does life look like when you're staring down the clock and you're saying, all right, there's not a lot of time left when your values come to the surface. So Peter's going to paint that for them. He's going to say the end of things is at hand and then immediately going to start and get into, all right, this is what life looks like when the end is at hand. So what we're going to see today is Peter is going to talk to them and he's going to bring up uh, four ways to live in light of the end coming, right? Those are pray with clear minds, love earnestly, show hospitality, use your gifts to serve. There's four ways to live in light of the end that, that Peter brings to them. So I'm going to read for us this text, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, and then we'll dive into what we think Peter's getting at here. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is God's word for us this morning. 
The first thing that we see, the first way to live in light of the end is to pray with clear minds. Right? Again, he's contrasting them to this surrounding culture, reminding them of their identity, saying you, you, are, you may live in this land, but your citizenship is somewhere else. You're going to see that running through this entire text. That very first portion, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What does sober-mindedness and self-control have to do with praying? What, what does it have to do with the act of prayer? I think it's important for us to remember that in prayer, what are we doing? Because I think sometimes we get caught up and just, you know, you just kind of sit there and you make some requests, but there's a real depth to prayer that is you're, in, you're starting a conversation, a relational engagement with the God of the universe who he knows, right? He, he knows what we're going to be doing. He, he understands our hearts. He, like he, he has seen all things happen, but he's a relational God. He delights in us to come and reach out to him. Or is a God who delights when his people come in and say, I don't know what I'm doing. Here's, here's all my stuff. I want to bring this to you and say, I can't do anything with this. Help me out. You, surely you can do something with it, right? So when we pray, we're, we're bringing everything that we have before God, and we're saying, all right, I, I don't know what I'm doing. We're rightly viewing God, and then we're rightly viewing ourselves as people who can't do it. And then we see God as the one who can provide, who is sufficient to do, to work behind the scenes in all of the world. So when we're praying, we're, we're rightly understanding how God operates and how we operate. So we think about self-control and sober-mindedness. There's this idea of our thoughts matter. What we think about when we think about God is one of the most important things about us. Right? I think those A.W. Tozer said that. And that's, that's just a, a reminder for us. The things that we think really, really matter. And in some ways, we can't just think anything that we want to think about God because it's convenient. It's Peter's reminder, this, he's in a Roman culture, pluralistic. There's this, this understanding of a multiplicity of gods and different pantheons and everything. And for a lot of them, they can kind of create gods to be whatever they want them to be. Not, not so the case with the God of the Bible. The way that we think about God matters. We want to think clearly. If the, the more that we get to know him, the more that we know what he says, the more that we know his heart and his character, the deeper our love for him. Right? You've never met anybody who says, oh, I know my friends so much better. I hate that guy. Right? Like a, a lot of times, you're going to get to know somebody you're friends with so much more, and you're going to delight in those, those weird idiosyncrasies that they have in their life. It's going to become nice. Right? You're going to see things that they have turns of phrase that they just say all the time. And those things are going to stick out. And you're going to, you're going to know, oh, yeah, that's, that's the thing that my friend does. Right? It's a little quirk that your friends have. Those become beloved parts of their personality to you. Think rightly about your friends. Get to know them more. It's, it's, it's similar for us. What we think about God matters. We want to clear distractions. We want to be self-controlled because, again, they're living in an age, we are living in an age, just like Peter, where we are going to have impulses and desires where if we could act on those at all times, a lot of us would. And when we do, there's, there's this kind of chaotic mess that that becomes. If every person in the world starts acting on every impulse that they have, I just, I don't want to be a part of that, to be honest. It sounds chaotic and terrifying, Right. Just if you know yourself, then you should know that's it's terrifying, right? Life's messy. 
So we want to think clearly. We want to be able to approach God with, with some control, rightly viewing our impulses, saying, all right, this is, this is a part of my life. This, this is probably sin in my, in my life, wanting me to, to act impulsively. I just, I want this. I want that. I'm going to go get that by whatever means necessary. So we, God wants us to approach him. Peter reminds us, approaching God with a clear mind and self-control because counterfeit truth is everywhere. And the worst part about counterfeit truth is that it looks delightful, that it looks a lot like the real thing. And sometimes you need somebody who really, really knows what the real truth looks like to tell you what the counterfeit looks like. It's appealing to us. And counterfeit truth comes in all sorts of different forms where we're going to be told by different factions of the world that there's certain ways to live and certain ways to view life, and we're going to be given a bunch of options that all are, are pretty unsatisfying. Again, they're counterfeits. They're not worth anything. So Peter wants to remind us there is a way to think, a truth that can be found, but be careful. You're going to run into a lot of counterfeits. So you need to be able to think well about who God is. Think clearly, control yourselves, be in community, pray, bring everything you have before God and say, I don't know what I'm doing. Help me to know you more. So we pray with clear minds. The second is, is love earnestly. And love is, is a word that, that we toss around constantly. Which is, it's a great one, you know? But when we think about love, we, we, should, we shouldn't think just about this sort of um, across-the-room Hollywood movie moment of, wow, I am very attracted to that person. This is, this is what love is, right? Even, even if it's love with friends, we all know that doesn't hold up. If you know anybody in your life, close friendships, like your, your love, once you get to know them, you're like, oh, man. Like this is, you know, those, like we talked about those little quirky idiosyncrasies. Sometimes those can get on your nerves. Sometimes those are bothering. And if love was just this like, oh, you make me happy for right now. Or, oh, I, I am, you are an appealing person to me. The moment that they do that little quirky thing that we talked about loving, on a, catch me on the wrong day, right? And we're not friends. And that's what's going to happen. Like if, if that's all that love was, then your friendships are severed when somebody just does something that bothers you. Which is why it's important that I think I think that we think about love as, as seeking the benefit of another regardless of the cost to yourself, right? It, love is pursuing commitment, saying, I am for you, I am with you, I am about you as a person. I'm here to seek your good above all else, right? It's, it's seeking the good, not just a good or a temporary good, right? There isn't just, love is not going up to a friend and, and where they say, hey, man, I just really need you to, to give me this thing that you know has been, has been killing them and, and tearing them apart. No, you don't, you don't go and give them that thing. Love involves giving them the good, not just a good that they ask you for. Love is not giving anybody what they want. We agree, yeah, it's patient, it's kind, right? It, it sees the best in people. But sometimes love has that hurt right? Where you can't always give somebody what they want, but you have to give them what is just objectively good for them. And, and that'll, that'll get you into some, some lovingly difficult conversations, which is great. We need to have those. You need to be able to engage with people really well. So we need to love earnestly. Love cannot be self-centered. This can't be us forcing our, our version of the good on people. 
So this is where you're going to have those tensions when you're in relationships with people. I want to love earnestly. Love's messy. Life is messy. People have hurt and pains, and, and it's, going to, it's going to be hard to, to get in there and, and love people. But it's what we're called to, seeking the good of one another, regardless of the cost to yourself, because there, we all know there will be days, and there have been days, where I do not want to go and love this person next to me. I just finished working. I don't want to do this. This is really, really difficult. This is costing me a ton. Good. Love will cost you in the same way that forgiveness will. Right? There is a way that we, we have to sacrifice something to kind of, when we're tired at the end of the day, pick ourselves up and go over to the person that we care about and be a lending ear for them, be a shoulder that they can lean on. Love can be costly at times, but it's also the most life-giving thing that we can do for one another. Right? The second part of that, that verse stuck out to me as well. Above all, uh, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So what Peter's not saying is he's not saying, okay, if you do really well at loving this person next to you, then, you know, all of their sins going to be gone and it's going to be taken away. Isn't, isn't that insane? Sorry, I think I misclipped there. Right? So he's not saying you're, you're going to go and love somebody and then, boom, you have, you have taken away all of their sin. No, Peter is definitely not saying that. Right? He, Peter, of all people, is 100% sure in the finished work of Jesus being the thing that's taking away our sin. So what I think, and what some of the, the commentators that we had read looking into this think, is when he says covers a multitude of sins, probably Peter, James, some of the apostles are taking uh, Proverbs 10, 12, which says, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all wrong. They're probably taking that proverb and kind of you know, making it a, a mantra of theirs or kind of morphing it a little bit into their own saying. So when they say love covers up sin, Peter has this extremely social view of sin. Because I think a lot of times we think, all right, sin, brokenness, this is just me and God. That's all there is to it. I've wronged God, and, and here's how this works, and that's, that's all that we focus on. But Peter very much sees sin as almost parasitic, almost in like a, like a, a ripple effect type of way where Sin latches on when, when you participate in it and latches on to those around you. It will affect people around you. And then when it latches on to them, then it, it gets ingrained in them. And then it's this horrific multiplying effect that Peter very much sees that. He says, it's social, right? We, yes, we are wronging God, but because we, we have broken that relationship with God in our own sin, we've forgotten how to view people because God's the one who decided that we, we had value and when we don't understand our relationship to God naturally, we're going to break our relationships with other people. And it's going, to, it's going to spread like wildfire to those around us, right? So Peter has that view, but he's also very clear. Sin causes cycles of, of pain. I think we've been there, where you know that, that sin, as you participate in it, almost hardens you to the good, true, and beautiful things of life that it takes away that joy. But at times you're so far down the cycle that you're like, oh, I don't know if I can get out of this. I'm pretty deep. I don't know. It's like you're, it's like you're wading through mud and each step just kind of feels like you're going farther. You try to press yourself out, but that's mud too, right? And you're, it, it feels like, oh, I can't get out of here. I'm, I'm stuck. I just stepped in the mud. I didn't think I was going to get knee deep. Well, no one does. That's the problem. So it's cyclical. As we participate, we get farther down. We get 
we get stuck in this place where it feels almost impossible to get out on our, on our own. It's because it is almost impossible to get out on our own. So what Peter's talking about is, is almost as if love, specifically the love of God revealed in Christ, is the only thing that when he says it covers sin, I, I get this idea of, of like a, this constant cycle people are stuck in and somebody's actually pulling them out of the mud, helping get them out. Selfless acts of love in the same way that Christ did is the only way to break these cycles of injustice, pain, hurt, heartache in our lives that feel, we've probably lived our entire lives feeling like, oh man, this, this is so much. This is so heavy. Nobody could really help me with this. And the only things that will help us out are these small acts of love from somebody to us or us to another person. There's this way that it plays off of each other to say, um, yes, we, we sin and we get into cycles and it feels like we're really far down, but, but acts of love cover us, right? When we forgive as an act of love on somebody who's in the middle of their pain, it's almost like a jarring moment of like, what do you mean? Everybody else I've ever done this to in my life is, has shunned me or, or sent me away or told me that I'm the worst and despicable and all of these other things, but you didn't. I wronged you, and, and yet you, you forgave me. That cost you something. That cost you the justice of me needing to pay you back for what I've done to you. What's that about? And it gives them a glimmer of hope. It gives us a glimmer of hope. I don't know about you guys, but I have received a lot of that in my life when I'm in cycles of pain and sin and heartache, and I have someone forgive me and tell me that they're there for me and that they want to be with me in the mess. And those things change a life. Right, that's, that's what Peter's getting at. There's a way to pull people out of their ingrained cycles of injustice and heartache with selfless acts of love. The next section is show hospitality. Read verse nine here again. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So when we think of hospitality, I think sometimes we think of, you know, having people at our house all the time and, and the, I struggle with hospitality, personally. I think a lot of us, of, of us might. Part of it is I live in Jesse's basement, and so, you know, having, having a good, hospitable space. I've got this beautiful island that they, they put together. Great job, guys. It looks awesome. Um, but it's, it's pretty much you walk in, and then there's the kitchen, and then there's, like, sort of a bedroom, um, kind of. And so there's not really a lot of space. When, when I think of hospitality, that's where I go to. What sort of space am I creating where somebody else can be invited into this, right? And I think one of our struggles with hospitality is that at the end of a workday, surely someone else in here has been there, where you get to the end of a workday, you get to the end of your work week, and you're just tired. Life is hard. Work is hard. Sometimes it, it could be your boss, it could be coworkers, right? It, it could be anybody. But they, they, in your mind, they make your life harder. So when I get home, I just want to watch the 37th Avengers movie, and I just want to, whatever show is on, I just want to watch it. I just want to put on something mindless and just sit there. And if we could, I think we would do that every day. Like I would do that, I personally would do that every day of my life if I had the opportunity. I'd sit down and watch Parks and Rec for the 90th time through, and it would be wonderful, and I wouldn't care at all, right? But there's a reality to hospitality that is, we were, we were quite literally built and created to, to show hospitality to one another, right? Peter is, is contrasting. He's calling them out of this, 
this Roman world where that Christ is not the center of. And he's saying, all right, we have a propensity to, to isolate, to be off by ourselves. But how much, how much love can we show another person if we're by ourselves? Not a lot. Right? Phones are wonderful. Technology is wonderful. But at the same time, it's made it really easy to shoot somebody a text when they live next door. When we can walk down the street and it's not very far. Radford's, everything's decently close. Very small town. You just walk in. You can get to know the person down the street from you in, in a minute. You can walk across the street and talk to somebody. And I'm not knocking technique because sometimes I get it. You're busy. You know, you shoot somebody a phone call. I understand. I just wonder the amount of times that uh, we use opportunity as an excuse to not just get up and walk. Right? We, we've been there. And at the same time, there's a hospitality where when we're creating space, even just in our homes, how do we invite somebody into our life? That's what I, I think about when I think about hospitality. We want to invite people into our life. Sometimes there's that fear of like, I don't know, my life's pretty messy. This is, uh, I'm not sure. You know, I, I've gone to friends' houses where there's like a bunch of kids just sprinting around and screaming and it's just chaos. And they're just sitting there, there's eye contact with me and they're just talking. I'm like, you are some form of superhuman. How, how are you hearing anything? Like how you, you hear me, but all I hear is your kid screaming at me. They, they made, usually they make you a picture though and then they hand it to you. That's, my fridge is just chock full of those. It's just incredible, right? There's chaotic messiness to life. A lot of it looks different. Like, yeah, 25-year-old guy that lives in Jesse's basement. I'm not gonna have five kids running around. So it's actually really nice for me when someone invites me into their mess. Right? We've been there where somebody has invited you into their life. You're like, oh, this is, this is pretty messy, but they want me here. Again, this is an act of love, an act of selflessness where, where you can go and you can feel belonging for once. Again, we're in a, in a world where, especially when you put a time crunch on it, when you have the end in mind, yeah, I want to get out of there. Right? Like, I don't want to invite somebody into my life. We show hospitality. We want to be a community of open tables for people. Low fences, open tables. My favorite way to think about it. The last one's using your gifts to serve. So I'll just read this last section for us. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We'll stop there. Oftentimes I find myself asking, why would I not just get all of the gifts at once? Like, I want all of them. I want to be the best at everything, so give me all the gifts. Why? Why don't I have all of them? That's ridiculous, right? But between all the, the apostles' teaching between Peter and Paul is that it's a really, really good thing that God has given each of us different gifts because then, I mean, heaven forbid, we have to rely on another person. Oh, and that's, we don't like to do that. It's not fun. It, it doesn't feel good when I have to call up my buddy and say, hey, I, and I even think, you know, Brett and Neil have an eye for aesthetics and for just good looking things. We have a wonderful looking building, right? They have an eye for these things. Whereas we literally walked through and we painted a hallway at this work day yesterday and the walls is just different color, right? There's just patches from where we had to do some work earlier and it wasn't covered over. And I had no idea. I, had, I literally could not see this whatsoever. Like, that looks great. And Brett's like, are you kidding me? Like, it's literally a different color. What's wrong with you? I just can't see it, right? They're, 
And that's a, that's a weird practical way to do it. He'll do that with like 90 other things in the building though that I'll never see. But there, there's a lot of ways like that we have deficiencies and I think we're really afraid to say that we have deficiencies. I think we're really, really afraid to say, I can't do this thing. It's uncomfortable to us because we want to be the best at everything all the time and be the go-to person for everybody, but sometimes we can't. And we need to understand that it's a really, really good thing that we've been given different gifts from different people. We need them. We need them to shine and to encourage them, and then we need to be able to be all right where we're at and say, yeah, I, I have been made as enough, and so have they, and together we can, we can work well. Right? We need other people. We need to, to not think that our gift is the only gift that, that exists in the world. A diversity of gifts forces us to depend on other people. And that's what we need. We're in a, we're in a world and in a, in a place just similar to where Peter was, where a lot of times people want to tell you that there's kind of a uniformity to, to people, that we're just kind of sending people out into the workplace, that we, you know, be just like this person. And, and we don't want to get too caught up in those worlds, but there's some reality to God specifically hardwiring each of us a different way and that as we get to know each other, we both grow in our understanding of other people, and then they grow in their understanding of us. And we can, we can play off of this. We can work with each other to see, oh, well, you see things this way, I see things this way. And, and I, I just wonder if we don't do that enough in our world, in the beauty of what it would look like if we were a community that cherished the differences between us. I think that'd be a really neat thing for us. The last thing that Peter says there is whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Right, what we do matters. In the mundane, tiring, boring moments of life, what we do matters. When you speak, it's as if, speak as if it's the words of God. When you act, act as if you are strengthened by God. Peter wants to remind them in a day where they're being oppressed and, and run over by a Roman government that could care less about how they live or, or their experiences or how comfortable they are. Uh, some days it's going to feel like, well, we've been chipping away at this Roman government and nothing's happening. Like, okay, that doesn't mean you're not doing good work. Peter's reminding them of the same thing I think a lot of us need to hear when we get to the end of our days and we're exhausted and we're like, does anything I do matter? This is dumb. Why am I here? I'm going to go home. I quit. Am I even supposed to be here? Like we've asked those questions, whether it's at work or in our own lives. We wonder if what we do matters, and Peter's encouraging us with the same thing that he told them, is everything you do matters. Whether or not we know what we're doing, oftentimes we don't. Whatever we do, whatever we say, our actions and our speech will affect somebody around us. And if it doesn't, then... Worst case is we are out loud saying true things, true, beautiful, and lovely things in a world that doesn't want to hear it. And hopefully one day it will. Now Peter's reminding them of, of this end. At the beginning, we talked about kind of the, the understanding of, of the world. When you, put, when you put time constraints and put us in a pressure cooker, right? How do, our, how do our values rise to the surface? And their reasoning and their why behind what they do is, if this is the end, if this is all we got, yeah, I'm going to go do whatever I want. I'm going to go get mine. I'm going to go indulge, right? I'm going to treat myself. More Parks and Rec jokes. 
Go watch the show if you haven't watched it. It's amazing. When our values rise to the surface, the why of the world is if this is all there is, what matters? And in some ways, they're right. The ways that they're wrong is that this isn't all there is. And that's what Peter's reminding them. The Christian life, as Peter reminds us, is not that everything's ending and there's chaos and this is going to be horrific, but he's, he's here to say, hey, this that we see, this, this hurt and this pain and this heartache and this suffering that we see, it's not forever. That something else is coming, that there's this kingdom that we can get glimpses of right now by how we treat one another, the fullness of it's coming to a people who are tired and they're exhausted, much like we tend to be. We're encouraged the same way that Peter is. Something's coming, I promise. The end is here, and as we look forward, how do we let our values rise to the surface? We live this way, the wise of our communities, that God's kingdom is, is breaking in like concrete that, that just can't take the wear of time and the earth starts sprouting through, right? There's, there's a kingdom that's fading. It's the world that we live. There are powers that be that, that won't last. But what we believe is that, is that God's kingdom does, that it's breaking through the surface and that it, it's always been the kingdom underneath waiting for the right time to crack through waiting to, to retake its places as the great kingdom that it always was. It's breaking through. It doesn't fade. Our kingdom ethic and how we live is characterized by the character of God who reveals himself to us in Jesus. So we follow a king in his kingdom who lives these things out. Jesus who prayed in the garden in agony and in anguish while his friends fell asleep and left him behind. He prayed. Jesus, who loved the people crucifying him, who's being tortured on a tree, says, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Jesus, who got down on his hands and feet and washed his disciples' feet in his last hours, his last days on earth. And Jesus, who spent his, the entirety of his life knowing that he had a limit, knowing that the end's in sight, he spent the whole time with social outcasts and with pariahs and people that no one else would dare be caught with, those who need to be pulled out of the mud of their lives. He spent his time with them. So we follow a king that lived this out, that showed us the way, but also created a way for us to, to have this fullness of life. He holds the words of life. Where else could we go? So I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll worship. Father God, I thank you for today. God, I thank you for the opportunity to, to bring your word this morning. Lord, we need you. Yeah, would you remind us that, that we have a citizenship that isn't here, that though we live here, our citizenship is heaven, and our citizenship is a relationship with you. Unity with you is, is what we were created for and what we long for. Help us yeah, to walk as exiles today with a kingdom ethic that reminds us the end's at hand and that you are going to bring more than we could ever hope for or imagine. We trust you and we love you. Amen.